prepare really, really well. You are the first Scottish international footballer I've spoken to, so this is exciting for me. And I, I think also the first um, agent as well. The first representative. Um, maybe the first question I should ask you, Jackie McNamara, ex Hibs, ex Celtic, uh, ex York City. How are you? How is it going? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, Health-wise, uh, a lot better than I was last year. Um, you know, recovered really well after my aneurysm and different uh, setbacks along the way. So, no, I'm, as you said, I'm obviously very fortunate to be here, first and foremost, with a great help from all the surgeons and NHS. So, yeah, very, very privileged and thankful. And also to, and I'll, I'll get her out of the way first, just in case your wife does listen to this. Um, it's always good to ingratiate. The lighthouse that always leads me to shore. That sounds like a wedding vow. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fortunately, she was with me that day when I, I collapsed and, you know, she responded really quickly and uh, otherwise wouldn't be here. No, well, you were so lucky. Uh, Moulton, wasn't it, where you live in uh, Yorkshire? And yeah. it just happened to be that the paramedics were on call five minutes away, so they rushed over. To your house? Yeah, they were in the in the area, thankfully. Um, you know, because otherwise, you know, the, the closest hospital is probably York, which is you know about thirty minutes away. So, I was fortunate there was an ambulance in the area, and um, they were uh, they were on within me within five minutes. You know, of me collapse. Yeah, credit to the lads. They saved my life. But also to the surgeon that you were booked in for... So you had this brain aneurysm, so there was a leakage of blood on the brain, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I had a, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, which was a leakage of blood, but also I had to be uh, sort of repaired. So there's kind of two options. To One was just to open up the, the head and, and clamp it. I was to go through my, my groin um, <laughs> and insert platinum coils to wrap round the arteries to secure them, which seemed like the best option. You know, that was the one that they kind of recommended to, to wait for that. Boy. Um, and then recovery, um, including the specialists. Wait, you remember when Donald Trump had his medical? Maybe you didn't follow this, but he would, he made really big claim of being able to recall five things. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. I guess that was the thing that you had to do, except you'd had the aneurysm. Mm-hmm. When I had... I survived the first bit, and the second bit was was getting the operation, um, which obviously uh, when they put the coils in, it was the wrong size or something. It didn't work, which had another bleed in the operation, and then, uh, that's when they put me in a induced coma. Obviously, that but it's life or death again, you know, for to make, see if I can survive that bit. So they put me in a coma. Told my wife and my kids and my family that were there that you know I might not survive this, but and if I do, I might have serious problems um, but fortunately survived and I don't have any real um, lasting problems which is sensational thank goodness for that because then we would never yeah. have his name is McNamara uh, a book published <laughs> on pitch 1999 segues into plugs or what I do it's just like you running up the wing my, my special skill is segueing um, written with Jerry McDade who is Greenock Morton's head of media do you reckon he yeah. secretly wants you to go up to Greenock and do a job there? Or are you quite happy doing what you do? I'm quite happy doing what I do. I've, I've had, obviously done the management stuff and, you know, I've no desire at the moment to go back and stand at the side of the pitch. 
if I could go back and play again, yeah, I would take that all day. But uh, the management, you know, after my experience, the last sort of job at, at York City, I, it wasn't. It's not for me to to enjoy it and go back into that. I don't miss it. Yeah, it doesn't seem enjoyable. I've read Mike Calvin's book, Living on the Volcano, and mm-hmm. I haven't got it with me just now, but. The introduction virtually says a manager is like social worker, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, best friend. And then you have to manage upwards as well. It just it is the impossible job, football management. It's no wonder that the average term is about a year. Yeah, as it's it's become more and more, you know, obviously the, the higher up you are, the, the more staff you've got to delegate in different things. But I mean, the things that you have to do is it's not really football related anymore as much as what it should be no you know just focusing on the team it's a lot of stuff going on behind your back uh, with different departments and people want your job people think they can do your job in, in all fairness it, you, I think how yeah, you put it across there it's become more just about survival than you know actually making a difference or teaching or, or trying to improve people which makes me think that the best managers are the ones who are the most human and humane. Jurgen Klopp has never been fired from a job. He's been promoted to two... Well, he moved from Mainz to Dortmund, Dortmund to Liverpool. I reckon that's almost unprecedented, because even you've been fired, which we will unfortunately get to when you recount it in this book, uh, which is out now. Great green and white cover, which it had to be. Uh, forward by Henrik Larsson, but we'll skip that. He's a he's a genius, Henrik. Yeah. What a brilliant footballer. Yeah. And I was I'm 33, so I I know we'll bring it to you. But I grew up when I've started following football in the mid 90s. It was unfortunately Walter Smith, Ali McCoist. So Celtic were always Rangers rivals rather than the other way round. But then quickly when Martin O'Neill took over, um, which makes it very exciting to talk to you. Um, part of that great Celtic team. And I only don't want to go so much into Celtic in the next hour because you're on tour. So I guess you'll be repeating these anecdotes. It's October in Scotland, and then you've got one in Liverpool on November 12th, and then at the London Irish Centre, November 19th. With Jerry asking you the questions? Yeah, yeah, it will be, yeah. Uh-huh. What do you reckon is going to be the number one most requested comment that you're going to have to make? One of the questions. Yeah. Um, I'll be who's who the best player was when you played with. Uh, that that got asked a lot over the years who's the best player you played with and against. Hmm. Well, uh, should we spoil it? I don't, the answer's in the book. Um, <laughs> but the player you played against with is very interesting. Um, uh-huh. And we'll, we'll talk about the new camp in the second half. So um, yeah. that's mm-hmm. the clue. But the player you played with. I remember Lubo Moravchik as someone who just scored every time. But this is an example of how managers from abroad can be good for the English game because Dr. Joseph brought him over. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to us he was, you know, unheard of and he was older as well. Um, he was in his 30s and nobody really knew much about him. But uh, it wasn't until we actually see him training and, um, and then playing, like, you realised what a talent he was and, even the sort of French players that we played against over the years, like Cantona and Friendlies and Zidane, they spoke really very highly of, of Maracic and his ability in France. They, they all knew. It's interesting now that in the last few years, uh, after 10 years of really 
top level play. Uh, Luka Modric became the world's best player, and there is there's a lot of argument to say that the Yugoslavian, the breakup of Yugoslavia. Maybe you know this because in the early nineties, with the fracture of the Soviet Union in Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. it separated all the great players into Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro. Um, did you yeah. ever did you ever play against any of those teams from the Baltic? Uh, played against Croatia, yeah. Um, and obviously played in Europe in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was in Bosnia, but it was in uh, Croatia as well, in Zagreb. So, yeah, I had a little taste of it. Did you get to see and much of Zagreb itself? Called, uh, a little team called Kozici, oh, yeah. which is uh, in, the Czech, uh, sorry, in Slovakia, where they were from. So, I played them um, in 96, I think it was. It would obviously nice to go and visit some places and you see different places as well, you know, and their cultures. Zagreb itself was a lovely place. Good. Have you taken the family back there to any of the places you had to work in? No, no not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably because you've been so busy, uh, and I'm going to have to name-check this often, um, the Concilium Sports Agency. Um, but I'm more interested in the Don McNamara Bar. Has that reopened now? In Spain, no, we, we, we closed it in the last October after the second lockdown just because there's nobody could go and visit and nobody could be there. So but we, we plan to resurrect it and get it back and we've been looking at one in, in, to do in Glasgow as well. So oh. that's what we're Glasgow is... trying to get. Well, Glasgow, I were looking to, to do a, a Don McNamara's in Glasgow, which hopefully we'll have some news in the next sort of few months. That's wicked. Good luck with that. Um, and I'm sure, will it be green only, or will blue fans be allowed in? No, anybody be allowed in. It's weird that they want to come in. <laughs> because, well, because I know, it's, I know everybody's what welcome. Like. Even in the one in Spain, with with all different fans coming in, it wasn't just a, a Celtic theme. You know, I had done Fairland strips up and Will stuff and Simon's time at uh, Sheffield Wednesday. So, you know, there was supporters from uh, Hearts and different teams Dundee United fans come in it was good obviously when people are abroad as well and they want somewhere to go and watch games or, or different sports it was good why we had it so we, we plan to obviously try and get that back again I'd love to go uh, I went to Glasgow because I went through it because someone was getting married and uh, we I flew back from Glasgow the city, having lived in Edinburgh for five years, I was in Newington and Marchmont. Oh yeah, but I yeah. do know I do know of Meadowbank where you used to live. That is a hell of a, uh-huh. a trek that you used to do when you were training as a kid. You'd go from Meadowbank, yeah. which is the west of Edinburgh, to Rickerton, which is way south. Harriet Watt. Yeah. Basically, is it? I know. Yeah. Uh, in Norway. Say that to your son and the kids now. You know, and you're driving about everywhere, like. Don't realise what the, the, the stuff you had to do when you were young, but going in that at, at that time and coming back as well. You know, the time you got back after training, back yeah, through the town, back to Middlebank after uh, training at night, it was then you're up for school in the morning. Big yeah. sacrifices. Huge, but as you say in this book, his name is McNamara. You couldn't title it anything else. Um, there was no plan B. There was football or nothing. But then again, it was the family business. Um, which yeah. took you from was it Glasgow to yeah from Glasgow to Edinburgh. So you're you're a weird yeah. transplant. Yeah, we lived. Yeah, we lived in Cumbernauld. My dad, my dad was at Celtic, and he signed for Hibs. He, he decided to move through Edinburgh when he was at Hibs, and that's why we ended up 
moving all through all of us, and then I kind of stayed there right through, really. I mm. liked Edinburgh. Well, I've lived in Edinburgh, but I've, I haven't lived in Glasgow. Is there a difference in everyday interaction? I know Edinburgh is described as posh, but there are some certainly not posh bits of Edinburgh. And Glasgow, ditto. There's some posh bits of Glasgow. But is there, like, a key difference between uh, a Ouija a, and a Ouija? Yeah, there's a there's a key difference if you played for uh, for Celtic or Rangers. Yeah, definitely. You know, people in Edinburgh they they, they, they recognise you and they are, but in Glasgow, obviously they they want to speak to you and they want more to do with you. I think Edinburgh's more cosmopolitan. There's got a lot of tourists there, a lot of people in the city, whereas Glasgow they're interested in you and they, they want to know things. I think that's true. I never got the sense as a student that I was welcomed as an Edinburgh resident, even though having stayed there five years, I can claim citizenship. Surely I can be able to reach yeah. out. Um, but it was a lovely... I'm going back there in November, so I'll try and... I'm not going to do Jackie McNamara tourism. I'm not going to go to your, your old house. But the, the situation was that you were working in England, the family were in Edinburgh, because you mm-hmm. didn't want to uproot the... At what stage did you uproot the kids? We tried to move them down when I went to Wolves. Uh... 2005, but then my wife, the kids couldn't settle, my wife couldn't settle, so they moved back the second year. You know, it was quite quite a tough time just because when I was playing with Wolves, when I was there, I was away travelling, so she, my wife would be stuck in with the three kids, you know, and there were two, two young babies as well, which wasn't easy. So the support from, like, family and her mum and stuff up in Edinburgh was quite quite difficult so eventually um, she moved back for the second year I always think when a player is moving clubs it's easy if you're 21 because you're just it's uh-huh. effectively you're going to a new city to live and work like an economic migrant but if you yeah. are of a more advanced age if you've got the kids if you're in your 30s you do have the, the creature comforts of home and it's more difficult to just uproot so I hope people remember that I haven't talked to many professionals who played the game. Uh-huh. Uh, the other thing that comes through in your book is that it is not a place for loyalty, football. And yeah. you, well, obviously people will hear, maybe it'll be extracted in the papers up in Glasgow, the store, because you mm-hmm. talk about leaving Celtic for the first time and it's just utterly, well, this is ridiculous. And you, you convey yeah. that really well. But you spoke to Glenn Hoddle and you gave him yeah. his word. I know, and... Um... I think uh, some people get that and some people don't. You know, and Glenn, when I spoke to Glenn, I hadn't pushed myself anywhere. You know, and we, he'd said about come down the next day and I'd, I'd give Celtic obviously the time to try and sort it. And they didn't. And, and it clearly wasn't about the money at that point after I'd given my word. You know, I couldn't turn around, even though it would have made my life so much easier, family and football and everything else. Once I'd said to him that I was coming down the next day, I, I, I couldn't look at myself a minute if I turned around and said no I'm not doing it I've got more money now off them and I've changed, changed my mind um, you know and that's I think that's kind of the way I've been brought up um, with my parents to, to, you know your word is important mm-hmm. um, you know what if what if I'd turned the car around what if I'd accepted it for, for family and, and, and life and everything else it would have been so much easier if Celtic had, had wanted me well, yeah. Well, fortunately, you're, you are still beloved. You still have this song, which we'll hear at the top of the second half. Was it easier to leave Celtic because the workplace 
was not toxic, but there's this bit where you're annoyed that you're you seem more committed than a lot of other players. Gordon Strachan comes in, obviously has his own way, um, because it's the the transition from O'Neill, and you've had this testimonial uh, yeah. against Ireland, which just seems unbelievable. And then it's the allegation that you stay on for the testimonial and then oh, all of a sudden you go to Wolves, which um, yeah. I think even an idiot would think that's the wrong thing to think. So can we just put it to bed, which you do in the book? You didn't leave yeah. just for the testimonial money. No, no. It's, um, the year before I was player of the year in Scotland, uh, sports writers and uh, the club player of the year, the players player. And I wanted a, a three-year deal, which took me to 33 uh, I've just come up for 33 and they, they only gave me one year as player of the year and I was just done and I wasn't 30 yet you know and I, um, and I thought I was playing obviously was playing well enough to be voted for the sports writers but not to, to just to give me a one year obviously it was a testimonial was granted at the end of that you know but I always wanted to get another two years after that to try and finish my career at Celtic but I think as time goes, it's it is it is a business, you know, and your value, different things, and stuff. Obviously, I learned more when it went to the management side. You know, managers make decisions, and people in the boardroom make decisions um, on value players and what they bring to your team. But as a player myself, you know, you, you just you, you worry obviously about yourself and your own career and your own future, and you do take it personally. Which unfortunately, you are a, you are a piece of meat. You know, if if they want you, then they'll they'll keep you and they give you what they can. If they don't, then like many other young footballers or many footballers, you're kind of cast aside and you're not you're not wanted or valued. It's not a fun profession. Are you with Gareth Southgate, who says, "Well, I love the game, but I hate the industry"? Yeah, I I, mean, I totally get that. You know, there's a lot of bad people that you have to deal with. And I suppose you could say that about any industry. You know, it is the best game in the world, but there is a side to that that. It isn't, it isn't so nice or the people that are involved in it um, aren't so nice. I'm with Sean Dyche, who, who is a great manager, a great human being, and like Martin O'Neill, a disciple of Brian Clough. And uh, Sean said, I've got no memorabilia. I'm not going to do the voice. No memorabilia in the house. And in fact, Sean Dyche was Malky Mackay's number two. We'll get to Malky shortly. But yeah. success for him is being able to switch off from the game, play five-a-side with the same mates he grew up with in Kettering, you And that chimes with what you say at the end of the book, which is that success does not come from money or trophies and international caps, although I'm sure it's nice to be capped for 33 times for Scotland. But success comes from your friends and your family. And so you still have friends whom you grew up mm-hmm. with, like Neil McCann. Well, Neil would play the games, but the other ones, you know, from my primary school when I moved, first moved through to Edinburgh. I've been friends from them ever since, you know, even though we're... Our careers have taken different paths. You know, they, one of my good friends, Tommy Harrison, was one of the best young players at our age group in Scotland. He was down at Man United with us, and you know, and Sir Alex was wanting to sign him, and he eventually went to Hearts, which you know didn't work out for him uh, for different reasons. But you know, in my career was obviously different. You know, I was struggling to to get somewhere at, at the time, and but I mean, we're still great friends to this day you know we're very close and and that I think that's the important thing you know it's at the end of the day it is a job I'm very fortunate to be uh, doing a job that I loved I love doing um, it's just unfortunate you can't play on beyond your 30s because there's nothing better 
Yeah, well, yeah, unless you play semi-pro or like Gareth Ainsworth, the manager of Wickham, you can mm-hmm. put yourself on the bench if you need to. Um, but the, the yeah. biggest success, I think, for you does come from the fact that you're still married to the same woman you married as a footballer. And I know you mentioned Sam follows your career, but mm-hmm. does it work out? This is similar with Peter Crouch and his wife, Abby Clancy. No interest whatsoever in the game at large. I wouldn't say she was not interested. She was. She, well, she, she went to Celtic like a couple of times, yeah. She went, uh, she went to the EFA Cup final in Seville um, with my daughter. And she went to a couple of finals, one that I scored in. Um, but it was more because of the social thing after it, <laughs> rather oh. than the games. That was at the time when she could see the other uh, wives and friends that she had at Celtic, we had at Celtic. She didn't like uh, the actual matches and without the management she certainly didn't go to any games when I was a manager and didn't like didn't like it one bit, you know, for worrying about the result and what kind of mood to coming home on a Saturday night or yeah. stuff. And obviously she knows what I had to deal with with certain parts and management. So she knew that it wasn't um, enjoyable and it was consuming at times and when you're going through a tough time which I did at York, you know, she was like just Bring yourself home, get home. Yeah. But I wasn't enjoying it. <laughs> that, that is the moment, the saddest moment of the book is when Sam just says, just come home because you're, you're, you're yeah. over there in your Cologne. Is it York? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Well, the, 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 it's almost, um, it's bleak. The bleakest moment of the book, mm-hmm. and I hope you talk about this with Jerry, is that you go from this testimonial against the Republic of Ireland because you've been at Celtic for so long and you go to Geisley. Can you bear yeah. to tell us what happened at Geisley? Uh, we get hammered in the game. They actually went one up and then the floodlights went. But, you know, there, there was a lot of, obviously, talk there and there was a lot of big crowd there. And it was, to be honest, it was like a, I, I, don't, I don't suppose you'll ever been to Geisley's ground, nope. but it's not like a normal football stadium. You know, people are standing around the side of the barriers, um, you know, and they're quite close to you. Um, and, the, the floodlights went out, went out for about 45 minutes. But we were th- I think we were 3-1 down at the time, or 4-1. And then the referee says, look, this game's getting finished tonight. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was a National League. It's this game's getting finished tonight if we're here till midnight. Um, you know, we're not, we're not cancelling the match. So we waited 45 minutes in changing rooms, which probably the longest ever. And then we came out and you finished 6-1. Obviously got a lot of abuse missing the part stuff thrown at me and different things and a crowd waiting for me before we got into the team bus um, a wee group when I came out when I came out of the change rooms after the players there was a policeman a couple of policemen there they said look there's a group there waiting you know I take you around to your asses no I'll just walk through them which I did and faced them um, and obviously a few shouts and different things and then I got onto the bus and, and that was a message for my wife was just come home which I was yeah, wanting to do it. <laughs> yeah. You have to be a certain kind of football manager. It would be lovely to watch Guardiola, Mourinho manage teams in that level. Um, I, yeah. I'm lucky. I, I go to St Albans and Wealdstone and uh, like Boreham Wood, who are currently doing well. These are grounds you may have been to. But York, I remember York falling out of the Football League and it was sad. And uh, you make me um, 
sympathise with the chairman. Jason, yeah, Jason, Jason Hill. Yeah, who yeah. visited you in hospital. And that's the measure yeah. of the man. But these chairmen at, at National League level, you, you, you're seeing what's going on at Barnet. Tony Cleantus is firefighting. Every day's a firefight. Yeah. That can't be easy. And you're pouring all that money in. And you're dealing with the fans who remember the club from the glory days. If Barnet, Yeah, Barnet had glory days. Um, but what is it like working in the National League? Is it fun in any way? No, not, not in any shape or form. Um, I mean, League Two is bad enough, but at that level, you know, it's, it isn't enjoyable. It's just surviving. Like, you know, if they win for a, a game, it keeps them at bay for a week to stop them. One of it's not, one of it's something else. So, but I think from Jason's side to you know, actually save the club, Back in early 2000 and stopped it from going under. You know the money, and obviously I'd, I'd seen what he was putting into the club and how he was saving it, you know, and just always getting his abuse. You know, I think we got promotion in 2012 with with Gary Mills, and they got to the FA Trophy, so they had two trips to Wembley, and they got promotion, and he still ran at a loss over one over one million. Oh God. That's with two trips to Wembley, so you imagine if it if it didn't get up that year, you know, and, and that was him really pushing for it and spending a lot of money. That's the way it's been for a uh, number of years. I mean, obviously, man, my, my time there wasn't great, and the fans never liked me or took to me like a lot of them. But you know, there's been a lot of managers that have been there that um, have kind of been the same. They've not uh, they've not went to done done anything since. It's been a bit of a graveyard. Mm, yes, um, but you you thought about going back to Scotland and then you stayed on as CEO, so you were still involved in the club and then Jason realised his life was troublesome, so he put it up for sale. I don't know who owns York mm-hmm. City now. No, he still owns it. Oh, he's um, still for nobody, sale? Nobody, 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 nah, well, he took it back off. Nobody bought it. Nobody mm. came forward. He still, they've moved into a new stadium, which is great, but I think uh, but nobody came forward and bought it. The supporters... Trust, I think they're called. They own twenty five percent of the club from when it went under before, and, and they put the club up for sale, which let me leave at that point as chief exec when he did that. But nobody, to say nobody purchased it. So, so, but you can understand why. Yeah, of course. Well, bearing that in mind, you've got Peter Lim and the class of ninety two at Salford City, whom you may have come up against. Salford City, they were on yeah. the way up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were any of the lads there? Was Scolzi there? I was there. In the cup, I was actually there twice. Uh-huh. Uh, I never seen the boys there. That, that, um, the ownership. I think I, no, I never seen it in, in the game. But when they played at um, Bootham Crescent in the return game, I think Gary Neville came to the match. He mm-hmm. was in with it, and it was all for fans. We didn't come into the boardroom or anything. Oh, that's very interesting. And the next one to watch because there's going to be a documentary about it at Wrexham. Um, with the Hollywood yeah. FC, that obviously they want to get out of that division and they'll pump a load of money in. But yeah. these are the these are the working men's clubs: York, Wrexham, Crew to an extent. We need that aspect of football. It can't all just be hyper capitalist elite. No, I know, and and it doesn't guarantee either. You know, I mean, they've sold them wrong. Salford have done well. They've they've got out the league into the football league. And, well, they've spent a lot of money doing it, but it doesn't always guarantee there, there is a lot of money in the national leagues. You know, teams spending a lot of money on players. It's just quite incredible. 
unbelievable. Uh, Although more unbelievable, Jackie McNamara, is your career, which we'll talk about after the halftime oranges.